America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 16. They got a new dance and it goes like this. Hi everybody, Joey D from the Starlighters, and you're listening to America's Oldies But Goodies. Be here or be square. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. Hey everyone, and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the 60s with host Dick Scopatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called Feelin' Groovy. He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swing in 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show? Hey, thanks, John. We have two different guests on the show today, both of them from very important parts of the 60s music business. How many of you remember all of the hullabaloo over a nightclub called the Peppermint Lounge? Early 60s, New York City. It was the hot spot for celebrities doing the town. This explosion of cool was set in motion by a group called Joey D and the Starlighters, whose hit record, The Peppermint Twist, had all manner of starlets going through the gyrations. We'll talk about those steamy nights at the Peppermint Lounge with Joey D. And our second guest, you're going to know by this lyric. You might wake up some morning to the sound of something moving past your window in the wind. That song, Elusive Butterfly, spent three weeks at number two in 1966 and made its writer and singer, Bob Lind, who had come out of the declining Denver folk music scene, one of the hottest properties around. We'll talk with Bob today, some 50 years later, about that bright, elusive butterfly of love and about his current resurgence as a writer and singer. For retro and vintage merchandise, you'll find some fabulous buys at Dick's website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Autograph records, tiki mugs, golf memorabilia, even a Paul McCartney signed album cover. Check it out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. By the way, you can listen to every episode of our show there too. That's americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. In 1960, the Starlighters were noticed by an agent in a New Jersey nightclub who proceeded to book them on 45th Street in New York City at the Peppermint Lounge. It was supposed to be just for a one-time weekend, but as it turned out, the actress Merle Oberon spent much of the night dancing with the prince, and the next morning, the newspapers were abuzz with that relationship. 
the next night, it took barricades and mounted police to keep the crowds in line. And all of a sudden, the Peppermint Lounge with Joey D and the Starlighters became the celebrity hotspot. And we've got Joey D with us today to talk about all of the celebrities that he and the Starlighters played for at that club. Joey wrote the Peppermint Twist as a tribute to the lounge, and it scored number one on the U.S. charts in 1962. So, Joey, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Dick. I'm here in Florida, where I live now, and having a wonderful time. Life is good. Oh, good for you. All right. And probably today, good weather, I'm guessing, huh? It really is. You sure can use a little bit of rain, but other than that, uh, it's it's a sunshine state. That's what they call it. It lives up expectations. Well, you know, what's interesting, you're talking about needing rain. I'm on the West Coast near San Francisco. I'm in, near Santa Cruz, actually. For the last five years, we have been bone dry until this year when uh, the entire sky opened up. We've actually gotten 200% of our normal rain this year. So anyway, the drought's gone here. But Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Oh, we'll have the rainy season pretty soon, so we'll be okay. Yeah, good. Let's start with kind of a brief overview of your professional background. We'll go back before the peppermint twist. And if you could talk about just, you know, being raised in New Jersey and what it was like going to grade school and high school there, take it away. Okay. I went to uh, public schools in Sake, New Jersey, my hometown. And it's a town of, at the time, 56,000 people. So it's a uh, medium-sized town. But it was a very blue-collar and a great mix of people. It was a, a melting pot, so to speak. And we had people there from all different, and mostly first-generation Americans from uh, Russia, from Poland, from Hungary, from Ireland, from Italy. From, and it was a, a great place to grow up, and some fantastic talent came out of my hometown, which got me involved in the music business. Okay. I went to high school with the Shirelles, oh. who were in Rock and Roll's Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And the lady that owned Scepter Records, their label, also was a Pasekite. And I got the Shirelles to give me, get me an audition with uh, Florence Greenberg, the owner of Scepter. And she liked it so much, we did an album for Scepter. And after that, we matriculated uh, to the Peppermint Lounge after we got discovered in that nightclub in uh, Lodi, New Jersey. And uh, fast-forwarded, uh, a couple years ago, they named the middle school, Lincoln Middle School, after Joey D. and the Starlighters, and they named the street where I grew up after Joey D. and the Starlighters. So it's, it's been a, a heck of a ride. That is exciting. It's, it's amazing. And, and the Shirelles, well-deserved, they have the high school auditorium named after them. So a little town of that sort. We had people like Joe Piscopo come from there. Uh, the girl from uh, Mash. Uh, what was her name? Loretta. Oh, Loretta. Yes, Loretta Swit. Swit. Yeah, she's also from Passaic. So, and we, we, you know, for a small town, it was a very, very cool to grow up there. And like I said, it was a, a great mix. So uh, I got my love of rock and roll and R and B music is what what I really love the most, and I got that from growing up in a, a mixed neighborhood. We had the Shirelles live right down the street from me, and my parents always taught us there are good people in the world and bad people in the world. So I never had a problem with bias or, or prejudice towards uh, ethnicities or religions, thanks to my parents for that. Yeah. Your parents, did they come over from Italy, or were they born here in the U.S.? No, no. I was first-generation American. They, my mother came from Sicily, and my father came from Abruzzo. Okay. My last name is Scapatoni, and my grandfather came from near Pisa, and my father's uh, family came from near Naples. So you have to have that Italian connection because you're a singer as I am. Uh, I, I think the Italians make uh, great singers. Yeah, I do too. I'm trying to remember so many times, you know, I've listened to Dean Martin over the years, but I would just have to take a wild guess and say that when him maybe and Frank would visit Italy that uh, the Italians would just uh, come apart when they would go over there. I'm assuming that's the case. I don't know that. Well, I'm pretty sure I'd have to concur, but because when I went to Italy, I've been there several times, they play more Dean Martin songs than they do here. Is that right? He's a a national treasure there. Oh, yeah, sure. 
and appeared there in person back in the day, he would have been overwhelmed with uh, with stardom. Talking about just your growing up time frame, when you were in high school, did you have a band? That's when I started my, my group, around 1950. Uh, what I did was I, I put together a group. It was a trio. I played harmonica at the time. I wasn't singing. And I had a drummer and a guitar player. And we were called the Thunder Trio. Very apropos, because that's what we sounded like. Yeah, okay. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. And I played everything from polkas to classical music on harmonica. And I used to go to a place called the Polish People's Home in Passaic. And every weekend, they would have the most famous polka bands come around. Bernie, with Bernie Witkowski and, and people like that, Bernie White, and, and, uh, and other people that uh, were number one in that realm of music. So I would listen to the music, and I loved it. And I just, I love the country music. I love uh, a little bit of jazz. I love, because uh, the people I was surrounded with, as I would walk down the street, I would hear different radios because that was a thing back then. There was no TV when I was growing up. And they would all be playing their ethnic kind of music. My mother listened to a station called WOV, which is New Jersey, New York, and they'd play all Italian songs. So that's where I got that thing. And then, then I started listening to people like Ray Charles and uh, Louis Prima and Frank Sinatra, who was also a, a Jersey boy. You know, it's amazing that this section of Jersey where I grew up had some of the most famous people in the music business come from the Garden State. Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, one of my dearest friends, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. I used to go watch them when they were a group called the Romans, and then they became the Four Lovers, and then they became the Four Seasons. Like you say, so many people from your basic neck of the woods. You mentioned yeah. uh, Louis Prima. I'm just a couple years younger than you. I'm 71, but I have an older brother. I think one of the first records that he got that I took over after he moved out of the house was uh, the Louis Prima live album that was done at Lake Tahoe. And uh, Keely Smith was on that album. So now, flash forward from be- me being a kid listening to Keely Smith and Louis Prima both, but I love Keeley Smith. We're now in the studio in Hollywood, and there is a Sinatra session about to happen. And we were with Warner Brothers at the time, and the, the photographer from Warner said, would you like me to get you guys in to see Frank sing? And we said, of course, naturally. Wow. So we went into the session, and who was in there but Keeley Smith? Now, I didn't have a chance to talk to her, but this was like, Ten years later, and all of a sudden, I'm now seeing all these famous people. And, of course, Frank was right at the top of the list. I mean, he's of in, course. in his own stratosphere. So that's interesting, just hearing about the people that were so close to you, even geographically. And I think, you know, on the West Coast at that time, take a wild guess at this, but I don't think the West Coast was beginning to blossom Probably until, would you say, maybe the advent of the Beach Boys? and No, I, I'd say it's before that, because I remember in the mid-50s, the uh, Earth Angel. Oh, yeah. And that's the West Coast. Yeah. And there, there are plenty of groups came out of the West Coast. Like the Rascals did their song, Good Lovin', originally by a group from, from the West Coast. So you had uh, a wonderful, different sound. And, and the Beach Boys, I'll tell you a little anecdote. When I was out in Hollywood in 1962, I uh, had my keyboard player get ill, and he was going back to New Jersey. So I auditioned six keyboardists, and one of them happened to be Bruce Johnston from the Beach Boys. And I imported a guy, Bill Callanan, from Nutley, New Jersey, because he had worked with me before, and he knew the music. So... uh, Every time I see Bruce, whenever he comes through my town of Clearwater, Florida now, I stop and see the show, and he says, thanks for not hiring me. Huh? <laughs> so it's like an inside joke. Yeah, yeah. But, he, you know, we're great friends. He's a, a hell of a cool guy. That's neat. I'm thinking here about, of course, Peppermint Twist is going to be probably the most talked about uh, part of this uh, discussion. But what do you consider to be among your most notable successes? Well, I had the pleasure of doing two motion pictures, which were uh, way above my expectations. I thought uh, a hit record would have been 
would have been great. And uh, I was going to college at the time. I was going to be a history and English uh, major, and I was going to go on with my uh, educational career. However, I took a hiatus for one year, and during that one year, we got discovered and, and got our hit record at the Peppermint Lounge. So that's how that all came about. And I was the background singer because I had two of the finest singers, David Bergatti. Uh, Bergatti name might sound familiar to you because of Eddie Bergatti, right? With Felix and Gene and Dino. Well, they were my backup band. Okay, yeah. Proper old uh, members of Hall of Fame, you know. And uh, these guys were just so great, and they went out on their own, and uh, I was very pleased with that. But David Bergatti sang all the top voice parts in all the Rascal recordings. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well for that. But, I mean, a lot of people don't know that. And the first recording Eddie Bergatti ever did in the studio was with me on my recording, What Kind of Love Is This? And uh, Eddie must have been maybe 14 or 15 years old. And that's when the music bug got him. So there's a, a great lineage going on here. It sure sounds like it. And unfortunately, I have not yet had a chance to go to the Rock Hall in Cleveland, but have you been there to check it out? I've been there several times, and I'm actually in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. None of my doing. They have a plaque for the Young Rascals, and it shows that Joey D was the caretaker and the band leader of their uh, going through the rock and roll business and becoming the stars that they did become. So my name's on the actual plaque in in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, so I'm proud of it. You know, I was talking earlier about the whole celebrity thing that happened at the Peppermint Lounge. It sounds like it happened overnight. Do you remember any of the celebs that were coming through there when you were uh, doing the Peppermint uh, Twist and that whole scene? Well, Dick, it's hard to recall anybody that was famous that didn't come there. Yeah. That would be a much shorter list. John Wayne, the Duke, came in. He didn't twist, but he was there. Liberace, Salminio, Nat King Cole. Judy Garland was there every night. Shelley Winter, Shirley MacLaine, Marilyn Monroe, Ava Gardner. I mean, the list is just endless. You name the star, they came to the Peppermint Lounge. Jackie Kennedy, Ted Kennedy. I mean, Ed, from all strata of society. When I first worked there, for your listeners that are not aware where West 45th Street is, it's part of Hell's Kitchen. And that was like uh, when I first started there, we had failures, hookers, and huh. and longshoremen, dock wallopers. I mean, this this was my audience, huh. and a lot of kids because the drinking age in New York at the time was 18 years old, and in Jersey, 21. So a lot of the kids from Jersey would come over the bridge or through the tunnel to see us, and they could legally drink in New York City. And the fights in there would <laughs> that we would have in there sometimes were just incredible. They would be similar to a John Wayne uh, Western movie at the height of the, the scene where the big fight broke out. Well, that that's what the Peppermint Lounge is like because you had people from all strata and in the beginning, I'm talking about. Right. But yeah. then after the, the swells came in, they had so many bounces there, everybody behaved. I remember the owners of the Peppermint Lounge, Sam Cornweiser, Ralph Segazi, and Lou Lombardi, they would say to me, because I was a you know, a kid from a blue-collar family, and I didn't know anything about the big city. When I came in and the fights broke out, I didn't know what the heck to do. So they said, when a fight breaks out, just play louder and don't stop. <laughs> oh, That's the advice I got. And then eventually the bouncers would clean it up, or the SP, the shore patrol, would be in there for the sailors and whack a couple of guys over the head and drag them up by the heels, and then and show would go on. It was it was an amazing place. It sounds like it. And I wonder, I'm assuming there's got to be some footage of that outside of the stuff. The um, the stuff that you did, the movies that you did, was any of that footage shot in the Peppermint Lounge? They actually made a, a set in the studios in New York City. Okay. But uh, it was very, very close to what the real Peppermint Lounge looked like. You have to understand, the Peppermint Lounge held like 220 people, according to the fire law, but they would have 600 people in there. Wow. And it was amazing. And, you know, not to uh, slight my uh, my British friends, but uh, they all came to the Peppermint Lounge. The Beatles were there. The Rolling Stones were there. 
my good friend Peter New, who I'm working with this weekend in uh, Minot, North Dakota. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be working at a big uh, antique car show. So we're going to have uh, a wonderful get-together on that. And he said, Joey, when, when I first met him about, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, he said, the place, the Peppermint Lounge, was the place that, the first place I had to go when I came to the States. So we were honored in that. And the Beatles I had worked with prior to their coming here in Stockholm, Sweden, they were my opening act. The Beatles were your opening act. That's amazing. Well, it, it's just factual. And we worked in a place called the King's Tennis Hall, and I got to meet all of the guys. And I threw a smorgasbord after the show. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. The guys were fantastic. We worked. We had worked at a place called the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany. So we had that connection, and we knew a lot of the same people. Yeah. And uh, I just met them that one night, but they promised me when they came to the States that they would come to the Peppermint Lounge, and true to their word, they did. I have pictures of them in the Peppermint Lounge, yeah. That is neat. All right, we've got to take a quick break. Let me punch up a tune, and we'll be right back. Some of you might recognize the name Dr. Wallach. Well, he's anything but your typical physician. Doc Wallach, who started as a veterinarian and naturopathic physician, always asks what should be the obvious question. Why does the United States spend more money on health care by far and still rank 50th in health and longevity worldwide? He believes that people should empower themselves with a basic understanding of nutrition, take charge of their lives in part through nutrition, not by relying just on prescription drugs that could lead to unwanted side effects and may lead to even more expensive prescription drugs. I like what he's saying, and I've joined the program to help him spread his message. You can check out his lectures and videos by going to my website, oldieshealth.com. If he makes sense to you, I'd like you to join our oldieshealth.com team. Check it out, oldieshealth.com. Let me know. I'm going to turn the tables for a minute. In spite of all of our successes, most of us know that life is not all a bed of roses. If you have one, give us your best failure story, either personally or with your band. Well, I'm going to give you one. Okay. And uh, I'm not very proud of it. I um, had the first integrated band in 1960 that had a 62 when we had the number one record we were the first integrated band and i took a lot of heat from a lot of the, the wise guys a lot of the, the, the guys on the dock they they weren't so uh accepting when it came to having the black guys in the band but i said this is my group and <laughs> you can come and see it or you don't have to see it but i'm not changing it but when the morris levy came in the owner of roulette records the, the record company I ultimately signed with, I had three choices, Capital, Atlantic, or Roulette. I knew it had to be a quick recording session, and Morris promised me the record would be out in four to six weeks. I said, I'm signing. I signed with him under the stipulation. One of the two singers I told you was a great, great lead singer, and I was a background singer. Yeah. Well, anyway, his name was Rogers Freeman, and he was black. And Mara said to me, you got to get rid of that guy because he doesn't fit in the front. The keyboard player and the drummer in the back, so that's okay. But you can't have him out front singing with you. Jeez, that's amazing. My biggest regret, I still look upon it very sadly, and, and I was wondering what the hell was I thinking. I told him he had to go, and I hired Larry Veneri to take his place. Yeah. So you talk about sadness and, uh, and tragedy, and, and that was, you know, uh, a huge mistake on my part. But then when we did get to uh, 
to tour the South, and the agents down South, of course, they wanted me to bring a, an all-white Lily Band because this is pre-Civil uh, Rights Movement. This is pre-Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And I had to do my thing. So I said, okay, we'll go there, but you have to make sure we don't mix up the band. The band has to be the band as is, and if you don't want to hire us the way we are, then forget about it. Yeah. They came around and uh, they they hired the, the group. We played University of Georgia and uh, maybe about twenty gigs down south. And thankfully, Carlton Lattimore, my keyboardist, was from Florida, and Willie Davis was from Savannah, Georgia. So they knew the deal. They knew what to expect when they came here. Yeah. And we were all told by the agent, okay, the white guys can stay in this hotel and the other guys can stay. In. I said, no, no, no. We're we're here together. So what we did do is we, we stayed in what I call Soulville, and they treated us like royalty. Yeah. And, and it, they're so hypocritical because we, we'd go into a restaurant. Of course, we couldn't eat together, so they'd say, go around the back. So we go around the back. Who's cooking but a brother and a sister, right? So we sit on a couple of sacks of flour, and we got some of the best food in the world. <laughs> we're so happy to have us. That's there. great. That is great. Those stories have to be legion. As a matter of fact, just as an aside, have you written a book? Or are you contemplating writing a book? I've written lots and lots of anecdotes, but it's not a book form. I'm not a writer. I wish I were. So I can put this thing and make, make a book out of it, make a story out of it. But I have so many instances and occurrences and, and people that I met and Salvatore Dali and going to his apartment in New York City having a party. Andy Warhol hanging out with him. Lenny Bruce and I double dated. I mean, it's it's incredible. Can't make this stuff up. And when people talk to me about things, I don't even mention it because it sounds so incredulous. I don't believe it. Right. And I lived it. Well, I think it sure sounds to me like, and I'm 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 just going to assume other people have already told you this, but getting it documented somehow. Those stories are spectacular stories. If you find someone, I got plenty of stories. If somebody can write it down and put it in book form, I, I think we really got something because just of when this happened during the Vietnam War, the day of the pill, and how how now the women became the aggressor instead of the men. You know, I mean, all of this happened at the same time. The integrated band pre civil rights movement. I mean, I was in right in the, the firestorm. And it was the timing couldn't have been better. You know, just as an aside, there's some spectacular stuff there that a lot of people, probably millions of people, would love to hear about. For listeners in my time frame, now I was born in 1945, we can remember back in the day when we were as fit as a fiddle. Now as aging baby boomers, we probably no longer look much like Jack LaLanne. If you're up for talking about it, how's your health nowadays? Well, thank God I've been very blessed. Uh, I go to the gym three to five times a week, and uh, I still do my songs in the same keys. I still do 90 minutes, and I'm done. I'm not breathing hard, and I can. I don't jump as high as I used to, but I can still twist with the best of them. That's great. Yeah, I've been very lucky. Have your musical taste changed since the 60s? What kind of music do you listen to now? I listen to all kinds of music. I was so influenced by the the doo-wop era. I love listening to that. The Moonglows, the Flamingos, the Harp Tones, Johnny Maestro and the Crest, uh, the Skyliners, Little Anthony. I mean, and these are people I got to meet. Yeah. Can you imagine? These were my idols. What an incredible turn of events that was. Then having people come in to the Peppermint Lounge to see this kid from Jersey and his band and what the heck are they doing, you know? to have turned the whole world upside down. You know, they say New York is is cold and, you know, you get your 15 minutes of fame, but New York fell in love with Joey D and the Starlighters and, and we fell in love with New York. Yeah, that's really neat. A definite chunk of history. And I can remember at the time watching you guys. And wow. I was probably, I'm going to say, maybe freshman, sophomore in high school, maybe somewhere around in there, or maybe even eighth grade. But I remember that whole time frame like it happened yesterday. I have uh, nine siblings. There are 10 of us all together. And my older sisters loved the big band's music. And there was a place called Essential Theater in say I would go in and listen to uh, Glenn Miller, and I'd listen to, and here, here I am, five, six, seven years old, huh. going with my older sisters, 
to hear these great bands, Tommy Dorsey, Jimmy Dorsey, Artie Shaw. And that's when I picked up the clarinet and from the clarinet matriculated to the alto saxophone and then sang background with the guys in the band. And, and one day I went to a nightclub in uh, Newark, New Jersey called uh, Ben's Cotton Club. Now, I was in there with David Brigatti, and we heard on the jukebox Hank Ballard's version of The Twist. Hank Ballard wrote it, and, and the Midnighters did the original dance. This is pre-Joey D, pre-Chubby Checker. Mm-hmm. This is 1958. Okay. Like that, 59 maybe. This is where I heard The Twist, and I incorporated it into the show, and it just... You know, it just took off like wildfire. I very much remember all that, too, all the high school dances doing the twist, of course. You know, back then, times, it sounds silly to say, but times were different. But things seemed to be just generally across the board easier. I'm, you know, trying to compare it to today. It's it's no way you can compare it, but. No. You know, we both you and I remember that stuff like it happened yesterday. And maybe because. Uh, there just wasn't so much craziness going on. We could we could focus on what we were totally into. I'd agree with that, but I, I think there was a reason for that. You know, the war had just ended, and and we had uh, Eisenhower in, in the White House, and then then the Kennedys came in, and wow, yeah, it was like a new a new world. Oh yes, it was just great, and we got along. See, that's the key. That's what's wrong with with our country today. It's not about the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. It's about the American Party. How's about what's good for the country? Yeah. That's what's good for all of us. Sure. You know, and, and, and there shouldn't be so much hate and disrespect for the President of the United States. Whether you like him or not, he is our president. Show him, show him the due respect. I mean, some of these people on the late night shows are, are just sickening, just vulgar. Yeah. And, you know, they, they shouldn't be saying the things that they're saying. And I'm surprised that their bosses aren't coming to cut that out. That's a real head-scratcher. I mean, there's so much stuff now that we would have never even considered doing, let's say, even 20 years ago. I certainly wouldn't have considered it at all back in the 60s, but... Can you imagine Johnny Carson saying that or, or Ed no, no talking like that? No, and I watched every single Johnny Carson show he ever did. I'm with you. I was one of his biggest fans. We were so blessed to grow up in that era. Think about it. We really were, and particularly now that we have the contrast and we see what's going on now, it makes it even bigger how fortunate we were to have come through that time frame. Now, the question I have is, is there any way to know when this whole thing is going to move on to something else so we can kind of get back to loving life every day? I just don't know if in our lifetime, I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, let me put it to you this way. I'm a believer in the glass is always half full. Yeah. I have uh, seven children, 13 grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. Wow. And I'm teaching my children, and I taught them, and they're teaching their children how to say thank you, excuse me, may I help you, and hopefully they're instilling that into their children, and so on and so forth. So there is hope, and is it going to happen in our lifetime? Who knows? But I I think the country is still the greatest country in the world. I've, I've been halfway around the world. I haven't been to all of it, but the countries I've been to, and I like the, I liked Italy, I like France, I like Germany, Sweden, all the places in Europe that I visited, Mexico and Canada I love, but there's only one United States. And once the country realizes it's the United States of America, maybe they'll get it. I'm not sure if someone needs to come along. I honestly don't know. That may be too simple of a way to to put it. But, yeah, it's it could be that someone, quote, someone. The whole thing is, it's all about, uh, in my opinion, partisan politics. And I'm a firm believer in term limits. If the president has an eight-year term, why can't Congress? I don't, I don't want these guys making careers out of being senators in Congress. You know, 30, 40, 50 years. They get too much power and too set in their ways, and then they become the power, and, and the people people's wishes become insignificant. They, they couldn't care less. As soon as the election's over, the first thing they do is start working on their next election. Stop and think about now. Let's just, just pick a figure and say, all right, you're 25 years old. You think back to that time frame. Do you remember spending 
very much time every day thinking about government and what was going on in government? I don't. I No, because I felt very safe. you got to remember, I lived through World War II. My brothers and my uncles were, were in the thick of those battles. Okay. So I was grateful. I, once the wars were VE Day and VJ Day, that was it, man. I mean, now we're the greatest country in the world and safe. And then 1950 shows up in a war in Korea. My brother goes to war in Korea. You know what I'm saying? But then you say to yourself, the times are going to get better, and they were better. Yeah. And I think the era that I grew up in and the era you grew up in was the greatest era ever. And the greatest, I think, generation was the World War II generation, without a doubt, in the history of our country. I agree, and I, I have a soft spot for the 60s. And when I look at it musically and I look at just how much we were all involved in music during that time frame, I can't find another decade that would be stronger than the explosion that virtually happened in the exactly, 60s. Exactly, because we went from doo-wop in the 50s to Hendrix in the 60s. And Hendrix was my guitar player in 1965. Really? Yeah, he played... Uh, unfortunately, I never recorded anything with him, but he was... Uh, such a, a great talent. He had just gotten off the road with Little Richard and my drummer. I was looking for a guitarist. My guitar player left, and uh, he got me Jimi Hendrix, and he auditioned in my house in Lodi, New Jersey. Wow. It was a real, real great deal. We've got to keep this stuff fresh in people's minds. Speaking of which, what are you doing nowadays, and what are your plans for the future? I still have a group. It's a familial group now. I have my son Ronnie, not to brag, but he happens to be a great singer, a great saxophone player, and uh, my daughter Jamie Lee, and my grandsons Jacob and uh, AJ, guitar player and drummer, so it's a three generations, and pretty soon it might even be four, but, you know, if I, if I make it anyway, but this is what I do, and we appear in places, we do Vegas, we do Mohegan Sun up in Connecticut, big casinos, we do a lot of 55 and over communities here in the great state of Florida, and I do lots of gigs, in, in mostly in the Northeast. But I'm going, like I said, to a big car show in Minot, North Dakota, and then I'll be in Boston next month. And So I'm, I'm still hitting the road, but not as hard or as frequently as I used to. You mentioned Minot, and I just talked to someone. I don't think it was you. I just talked to someone in the last four or five days, and I'll see if you know any of these guys. I talked to Bill Cunningham of the Box Tops, Sandy Dean of Jay and the Americans, uh, Peter Rivera of Rare Earth, and who else? Oh, Tom Garrett of the Classics Four. One of them is going to where you're going. Oh, that's very possible. Yeah. It's going to be a two-day affair, and it's going to be many, many groups there. I'm, I'm on a show with Brian Hyland and uh, Peter Noon, so well, we're going to have a great time. It sounds like fun. Well, first of all, let me say again, thank you so much just for even giving me the information you did. Thank you for having me reminisce with you because I'm, I'm recalling things that uh, some, of the, some of the things that you, you evoked from me that I had forgotten and, and especially the Roger Freeman incident. And that, that's a heavy-duty incident. I mean, now, taken against the backdrop of history, that's pretty heavy-duty. Yeah, yeah, and it was uh, one of the saddest days and the saddest uh, choices I've made in my life. We shall uh, talk soon. Okay, and keep feeling groovy, Dick. Okay, will do. All right, Pally. You might wake up some morning To the sound of something moving past your window in the wind And if you're quick enough to rise You'll catch the fleeting glimpse of someone's fading shadow Out on the new horizon You may see the floating motion of a distant pair of wings Sleep has left your ears You might hear footsteps running through an open meadow Don't be concerned It will not harm you It's only me pursuing something I'm not sure of I brought my dreams With nets of wonder I 
Hi, everyone. It's Dick Scopatoni again with a question for you. Are you happy with how you feel physically? I kind of already know the answer to that. I want to share with you Dr. Joel Wallach, an alternative health professional who is both a veterinarian and a naturopathic physician. Doc Wallach is a tireless crusader who has been on a 40-year mission to educate people about the right kind of nutrition and supplementation, and he's not very much into prescription drugs and unnecessary surgery as the optimal solution for health and longevity. I like what he says, and I've joined the program. He is passionate and entertaining, and he captivates nearly everyone who hears his lectures or sees his videos. A lot of folks have tried his premium quality supplement packs for themselves and have seen their lives change dramatically. I use them, and I'll update you weekly on the progress I'm making with this program. Go to my website, oldieshealth.com, and check out his lectures and videos and decide for yourself if you want to invest in your own health. Sometimes you've got to take care of yourself. Sometimes you've got to consider all those prescription drugs you're taking and ask if they're really helping. They're probably not helping your pocketbook, that's for sure. Depending on what health challenges you have, you may want to order probably the most notable one, the Healthy Start Pack. You can also order the Healthy Digestion Pack or the Healthy Blood Sugar Pack, which is the one I'm taking. I've got type 2 diabetes, and I will let you know every week how it's working for me. So for those of you that are already on Doc Wallach's program, let me know how it's working for you. Again, go to oldieshealth.com and check out all the benefits you may be missing oldieshealth.com. Get well. When I think back to the days when lyrics were important and you could actually understand them, I realize how that class of songwriters has really disappeared. Today we're talking with a guy who's still able to put the words together and make an emotional impact in the short recording span of 2 minutes and 45 seconds. When Bob Lind wrote You Might Wake Up Some Morning to the Sound of Something Moving Past Your Window in the Wind, That created a word picture worthy of framing in the 60s museum, and he's still writing those beautiful scenes today. We're going to find out if he's still chasing that bright, elusive butterfly of love. Bob Lind, welcome to America's Oldies But Goodies. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. And, of course, that song is the standout tune for you. But I've listened to uh, the latest. I'm assuming it's the latest album. Magellan was wrong. Is that the latest one? That's the last one. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say last one. That has a morbid feel. Right. (laughs) That's the most recent one. Yeah. But there's some just great tunes and notably great lyrics. I think that's probably what has always stood out for me is the emotional value of the lyric writing and there's a couple of tunes and we can talk about them but one uh, is called never even there which i would not have known until i listened to the whole song what the point of that was which is another great bit uh lyrically that you can do but let's take it before we get into that let's go all the way back to your early days before Elusive Butterfly, and you can go back and start with high school or even before that. Tell us how you arrived ultimately at getting that hit tune. Two separate things. One, getting a hit tune is something I know nothing about. That's a mysterious process determined by the gods or the, you know, destiny, whatever it is. But as far as the creating of music, I just think you start out by having to love it you have to love it i think i always have, have loved playing music and i have tried not to, i mean maybe not consciously but it seems that i have somehow managed not to get dropped into a into a convenient box i mean people will always do that folk rock i mean i guess that's a label but I, i've always drawn from all kinds of sources and I think that shows up mostly in my later work, not to jump ahead. But the thing is, is that, uh, so, so in other words, I, I don't understand trying to create a hit song. Now, there's plenty of people who do it, they do it well. You know, Carole King and Jerry Goffman, Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann, 
Neil Sedaka, the Brill Building people, knew how to do that. They knew how to. They knew what it, what a hit record was. They knew the the cadence of it. They knew the the length of it. They knew the formula for it, and he did it very well. I never really mastered that. Elusive Butterfly was a total fluke. If you noticed that it was completely different than anything that was out at the time. That's there was right. really nothing like it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, here's a story. It's pretty well known, but just in case some of your listeners don't know it. Elusive Butterfly was a B-side. It was released as a B-side. The A-side was a song called Cheryl's Going Home. That's the one they had the hopes for. And when they asked me what I had recorded four things for uh, World Pacific, which is Branch of Liberty. Recorded four things with Jack Nitchie. One was uh, You Should Have Seen It, Truly Julie's Blues, Cheryl's Going Home, and Elusive Butterfly. And they asked me what I thought was was the hit, what what we should release. And I, I said anything but Elusive Butterfly, <laughs> because Elusive Butterfly was the was the, to me uh, commercially the weakest the weakest one. And uh, so they said, okay, well, we'll release Cheryl's Going Home. That seems to have a, have a, be a strong rocker. And uh, we'll put Elusive Butterfly on the B side, make sure we don't get split play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mystery that you're talking about, total mystery. I know that's happened to me on more than a few occasions, particularly when you come out of the studio, you finish the song, and you're saying to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever recorded. Yeah. Right. And then you play it for people and you get blank stares. It's like the mystery is the mystery. There is really no way to know what's going to make a hit record. But well, I, I, again, I, I mean, listen, Carol King was right for a long time. You know, uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde, they were right for a long time. Lieber and Stoller were, were right. They guessed pretty well. Yeah. I, I, it's just a different cause music is different for them. It's a different thing uh, to me, and I got I know how precious this sounds. To me, it's an art. You know, when I write a song, uh, I, I'm not saying what are millions of people going to go for. I have a certain target listener in mind. I have I have somebody whose sensibilities are similar to mine, who has been heard in the same way, whose joys are the same, and I write as truthfully and honestly as I can. And aiming it toward that, I, I don't believe in this, so I, I just write for myself. Musical masturbation, I, I don't get it. But I do try to touch people, but I don't try to, to reach a lot of people. And if I do, that's, a, that's wonderful. A lot of people get the wrong idea and think I have contempt for Elusive Butterfly, and, uh, and, and I don't. I, I'm, I'm so glad that it reached a lot of people. But as you, as you mentioned just now, you know, I feel there are so many songs that are better than that. They're better crafted, and they're more deeply felt, and they're, they're deeper. When I say deep, that sounds like it's uh, advocating this com- kind of complexity, and I'm not at all. I, I, I just mean it's just as easy to go deep in a few words or in a, in a, in a small amount of time as it is to, to expound. I think what you're talking in part about is uh, emotional depth uh, lyrically, and there's a dearth of that at the moment. I don't think there's been any great lyricist. Now, you might disagree with me, but I don't think there's been any great lyricist for quite some time. What you write and the stuff that I've listened to, the more recent stuff that I've listened to, touches all the emotional chords. In other words, it seems to have a mission when you set out to write a song, part of the mission is to say something that pushes some kind of button somewhere. Yeah, I agree with that. And I don't want to be one of those guys, you know, those curmudgeon types, you know, so, ah, they haven't written a good song or made a good movie or whatever <laughs> right. in, in such amount of time. You know, I mean, I think John Mayer, you know, whatever it is now, 20 years ago or something was, was on the on the road to something. I think he was, I think his lyrics are very powerful. And, uh, you know, I, to tell you the truth, I don't listen to much uh, newer stuff. I, I turn on those radio stations and I, there's not much there for me. I want to be careful not to, to dismiss what the younger people are doing. Like you, I don't get a lot out of it, and I don't spend a lot of time studying it. My roots really are similar to yours, and the, the 60s uh, had the biggest uh, musical impact on me, so I tend to key in mm-hmm. on that. But what do you consider to be among your most notable successes? That word has changed its connotation over the years. 
you know, the closer you get to the end of the journey, success starts to mean something else. It certainly was not Elusive Butterfly. That was the biggest commercial success, of course. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like the fact that I have been covered by by 200 artists who have been, and plus, 200 plus artists. Oh, that's not, amazing. Not just Elusive Butterfly, but, you know, my whole body of work. Yeah. And that, and that means a lot to me, but not because it made me a lot of money. You know, it, it, it means a lot to me for a different reason. It, I guess one of my successes that, that comes to mind is, is that, the, the fact that, that it appealed to artists who I admire. I mean, you know, uh, Aretha Franklin and, and Glenn Campbell and uh, the Four Tops, Richie Havens. Uh, Richie Havens, of course, in the category by himself. But uh, some of the best successes happened, have happened for me in little clubs, I guess we're limiting this to music, and that's fine. Uh, and, and like the, maybe the third set or the second set, where there's, you know, maybe 40 people in the audience, and something happens. That magic that we all know about mm-hmm. playing music, you know, mm-hmm. feeling groovy is, is uh, you know, certainly touched a chord too. You know what that's like. Yeah. But yeah. you also know what it's like. When there's not a lot of people around, it's not, you know, I played the Hollywood Bowl. I played the Hollywood Bowl when it was full, you know, it was p- part of a, a, a review, you know, mm-hmm. Sonny and Cher and the Bo Brummels and, you know, various people were, were also there, Donovan. But the thing is, is that that hasn't given me, you know, I guess people would consider that a success and certainly is a milestone. But those, that thing when you, when there's 40 people in the audience and you're on it. You know you're on it. Yeah. You're hitting all the emotional high points. You're getting, the, 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 your voice is good. The guitar is working. And there's an electricity circulating around the room. And, and you, you stop playing and you know you've done it. Or more correctly, I guess, is that something has happened through you. You know, and I don't want to go all religious on your ass here. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. not one of those. But I, I know what you're talking about, sure. Yeah, there's a power that I think, I don't know any musician or, or, or artist who is a complete atheist. He may not have a definition of God or may not, may not uh, be a worshiper of any particular religion. But we all know when we do it right there's something happening that's bigger than us. It's not just this little brain that sits behind our our eyes and and our foreheads cooking something up. Our antennas are out there. And to to answer your question, I know I'm taking a very circular way of answering your question, but when that happens, and you know it happens, and the people around you happen, and you stop playing and people go, oh, oh, yeah, and they burst out into this kind of applause that you can't force, you can't make it, you know, you, you know when there's polite applause and when there's, when there's, when you know you've done something or something has happened through you. Those are the successes that matter to me. I think they complete the connection. Uh, one thing that I used to feel on stage on occasion, maybe I'll say half the time, well, there, it was like a conduit. There was actually a connection, maybe a circular connection. I don't know what to call it, but we were doing something from on stage. The audience was doing something out in the audience and the two kind of revolved around each other. Oh, yeah. You said it exactly right. I mean, it's a I I mean, there's no discernible point when it's happening. There's no discernible point at which the audience's level begins and yours stops. There's something in the room. You may initiate it. Mm-hmm. But you you get it back and it ping pongs back and forth. Of course, you know the, these are the, these are kind of cliches we're talking about. Most people who who have played music know this. Yeah. And uh, but but you know nevertheless it's worth saying, isn't it? Because you know I mean and and, and I've been wrong sometimes. I've gotten off stage where I've done everything. And here's the quotation marks, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've hit all the chords. I've hit all the lyrics. My voice has been strong. But that circular thing that you just t- mentioned hasn't happened. And who knows why it happens and when it happens. What, you know, that's one of the things I, I kind of like about not only music, but, but uh, art in, in general. You know, but I also write plays and novels and, and, uh, and poetry. 
and and it's mysterious. You, there's no way to figure it out why it happens sometimes and why it doesn't. Why you can seem to do the the and and, and conversely, I felt that I've missed chords and I've dropped lyrics and the audience has gone crazy. That's true. I the, that whole area, I, and it may be what we're kind of. I don't want to say discovering, but even just wandering into is initially you talked about the mystery of how do you make a hit record that there's more of a mystery surrounding what we do, not only from when you go in the studio or when you're writing the tune that you think is just the absolute best you've written. But when you go on stage and it almost doesn't matter the size of the audience, you know, and you feel it. Uh, the there is a connection or if there isn't a connection that's not a problem i've never had a bad audience so to speak but i I know when i've had a good audience by the time i walk off the stage that was worth it you know that was one night that was really worth it and i think that's where you're going not only with what you're saying but again i keep reflecting back on the lyrics and the value of being able to say something. Anybody that's a writer, quote, writer, uh, knows that it's tough to get the right words out. I mean, I think of um, Oscar Hammerstein, the corn is as high as an elephant's eye. How does anyone write that? You know, where does that come from? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and, you know, it's a craft, but it's also something else, too. It's really... I mean, I can tell when people, I mean, you know, one of the things that, I don't know, I don't know if it's kind of a modern music, but it's, it's the music that that they sing on, um, you know, they used to sing on American Idol, and now they sing on The Voice, you know, those big songs where, you know, look, you know, I'm a gymnast, look what I can do with my voice, my voice can, can go here, my voice can go there, and it's all so slick, and it's all so practiced, and now, those people are talented. They believe me. Those are the kind. Those are the kind of people who could walk into a club and have everybody on their feet. But it's not the kind of thing we're talking about, is it? It's no. not. It's not the same thing as what Fred Neal used to do, or well, Richie Havens. I mean, Richie Havens is. I don't know how where to even start. Have you ever seen Richie in person? Never seen him in person. Well, it's it's too bad. It's it's too bad you missed that because. There's nobody who, who does that, I think, better than Richie did, you know. Did you guys come out of a similar background uh, vis-a-vis folk-related? Yeah, they were, they were a little, uh, Fred Neal, uh, John Sebastian, uh, those, those people, Judy Hensky, well, nobody knows Judy Hensky now, I guess, but uh, those people were, were in the village, uh, and, and they were a little ahead of me, okay. you know, uh, uh, Tom Paxton and these guys. I was just maybe five, six years behind them. I, I, was, uh, I was cutting my musical teeth in, in Denver, you know, so it was a different kind of thing. But, yeah, they, they were, some of the, those people were my idols. As you were talking about all the people that have covered mostly probably Elusive Butterfly, but your other tunes, Glenn Campbell and what have you, to just talk about some of the people that you worked with in addition to, say, people like Richie Havens that you felt some sort of connection with. Well, Hoyt Axton and I did some shows together. I always loved Hoyt Axton. I think he's, he's a... And he was a friend too, and, and the Dillards, Doug Dillard, was oh, a friend yeah. of mine. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I didn't much hang out with celebrities. I did a tour with uh, with Roy Orbison. It was, was the most grinding, horrible time. I mean, it was just you know, I was drinking then, and uh, it was it was not a, a pleasant time for me. I, you know, I was drunk all the time, and but this, uh, that stands out because it, you know we did we did twenty one shows in seventeen days, which means we did we did some daytime you know, matinee things, and there was never enough sleep, and, you know, but it was, but I can always say that I toured with Roy Orbison, even though he hated my guts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I mean, really, you know, he, he was having families come out, you know, and and uh, and hear him, and I was, everything I did on stage was profane, I was drunk all the time, you know. Yeah, but, let's kind of sidle up to that a little bit. I've got a question for you that in spite of all of our successes, most of us know that life is not all a bed of roses. What's your best failure story? Well, I have a personal failure. I, I, I don't know. This, I've always regretted this. Um, Nancy Sinatra cut a song of mine called uh, Long Time Woman. 
And when she did it, you know, I was, I, I, Mac Davis produced me uh, at one time. And we were friends for a while. And then we had a falling out. And, uh, and it was a prideful thing on my part. You know, it was probably 90% my, my fault. But he got together uh, with, uh, with, with Billy Strange, and they cut longtime woman with Nancy Sinatra. And they called me in to listen to the cut. Yeah. And just to get at Mac Davis, you know, I said, ah, yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it was beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. And so, obviously, word got back to her, oh, well, you know, Bob, you know, I didn't care for it. And yet it was it was one of the most beautiful covers of, of my work, and and I never got a chance to tell her. I've, I've tried to reach her since, but you know she doesn't take my calls or respond to my emails, or I even sent some letters out, you know. And I've, apparently she was either she was hurt by that, or it's not important enough to her, you know. But I, I regret that I didn't give the credit that, that she deserved, you know. I mean, it just sound like a massive failure. The big failure, of course, if you want a more general picture, is the fact that I was drunk all the time. You know, I was always drunk during, you know, I mean, during the last part of my career. And I abused people, and I, I was prideful and small of spirit. And, and it hurt me, and it hurt people who loved me and believed in me. You've been clean and sober for how many years? In two months, I'll have 40 years. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. My son is, I think, looking at 20 years, I think. Wow. Yeah. Great. Let's talk about your health. How is your health nowadays? Well, you know, I, I almost don't want to jinx it because you hear all the time about people who are standing on a curb. They were in perfect health. They just had a physical a month ago, and they dropped dead from some kind of aneurysm or stroke. Knock wood, I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. So are you okay going out on the road? Oh, you bet. Yeah, I'm, I've got a tour coming up, as a matter of fact, that uh, is going to cover uh, Colorado and, and uh, Arizona and California. How can we find out about that? Go to your website? BobLynn.com, yes. In a blinding, blinding flash of inspiration, I call my website BobLynn.com, <laughs> okay. and I just go to the gigs page. I've already been there, so the folks are going to want to check that out, BobLynn.com. Have your musical taste changed since the 60s, and what kind of music do you listen to now? Yeah, I think I think it, it has. Uh, I, I like, uh, well, there's some of the, the classic people I, I still like. I like uh, Danny O'Keefe. I, I think Dan, Danny, when we mentioned tours, I should have really mentioned that first. That was one of the most enjoyable tours I ever did was the Danny and I toured together back in 2013. Uh, but I like jazz, I, you know, I like Miles Davis, you know, I like Houston Person, I like uh, I like more jazz than I used to. What do you see as some of the biggest differences between the 60s and now? I mean, obviously there's a lot of them, but is there anything that, I don't know, I don't want to say rubs you the wrong way, uh, just simply what is a notable difference between when you and I were making records back then versus today, not necessarily in the music business, just the difference between the times 50 years ago. The marketing is so different now, and, and that's something I don't, I'm not very good at. That's why I have Joe Garrett, my manager, is, is, is the one who handles that kind of stuff for me. The, the big thing is, is that you can go on tour now and sell your, your work Right after the show, you can take your CDs with you. That was unheard of in the '60s. Sure, that's right. And and you know, I, again, I, I, it's so easy to talk in big blocks. The '60s were this, and the present is that. I, I just have to say, for me, I wish I had a larger fan base. Well, I don't want the responsibility of being a star, you know. Uh, but I, I certainly uh, would like it, like a few more fans than I have now. Yeah. But but all in all, it's freer now. I mean, it really is. It's freer. You know, I don't feel that I have to, you know, when, when you have a big record company uh, pushing you and making all the, the decisions uh, about your music, you, you can't really work that way. So now I'm, I'm pretty independent at Ace Records. My record label is fantastic. They don't ever tell me what I, they think I ought to do. They just take my work and they, they trust me. 
and uh, I love that relationship. You're not part of a big machine. Yeah. You know, I think we kind of saw the beginning of that machine in the 60s. I felt that, I and I was out of the business by the mid-70s, but the 70s felt to me like... That's when the lawyers took over, and it changed. Everything changed. The The fun of just singing seemed to disappear at that point. But let's talk about what's going on now. You know, I mentioned Magellan Was Wrong. That's your most recent album, and I've listened to a number of the tunes. Another great tune, Two Women. Great tune. Uh, part of what struck me, and I keep referring to this, because you're kind of a rare bird in terms of people who can think onto the paper. In other words, you're able to just take whatever emotion you're trying to contrive, and uh, it does hit the page. I'm sure it doesn't hit the page instantly. Sometimes it does. Does it really? But, okay. But, you know, but no, but here to this extent, you're right. Uh, I'll sing a song for a long time before I'll say, oh, that's a weak line. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a while. And so I'm constant. My songs are never finished, as they say. Thank you so much. And then I got to listen to more of the uh, Magellan Was Wrong. It's a knockout of an album. So thank you. All right. Well, you take care. All right. You too. Bye bye. Some of you probably already know the America's Oldies But Goodies podcast is now on iTunes, Stitcher.com, and iHeartRadio, and soon I'll have my own app, which you'll be able to get through the iTunes app store. As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, and not only take a listen to the archive of all of our shows, but to check out all of the retro and vintage merchandise available there. For example, in addition to a rare signed John Lennon self-caricature, we're featuring a Muhammad Ali signed collage of exclusive artwork, quotes, and fight statistics. That plus tickets to Cher's Las Vegas show coming up this summer. You'll find it all at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. You can also email me with your suggestions on what guests you'd like me to have on the show. I'd love hearing from you with any ideas that you've got. So until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then.